It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 is the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. He is Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes. Multiple ways you can interact with us here on the program. 201-939-4513. That is option number one, the telephone number. You can also hit us up on Twitter, hashtag Giants Chat. And as a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So yesterday we were talking about how the franchise tag window has officially opened. It goes all the way through March 8th, so we'll certainly continue to add to that dialogue as we inch closer to also the Combine, which will get underway next week. This is pretty much the downtime, as we talked about yesterday, Paul, so not really a busy time period in terms of NFL news. Most teams at this point, the priority is, hey, try to get your house in order, have some direction in terms of what it's going to take to get under the salary cap. That's what the bulk of teams right now are focusing on. And then they're going to start to turn their attention to the combine, which will really be their first opportunity to see some of these prospects up close and personal with respect to measurements as well as interviews. Well, you know, the uh, item that came out a couple of days ago and then it kind of got reversed, you had half of the agents and the players talking about actually boycotting the combine because they didn't like the bubble rules that were being put in play by the league and then 24 hours later everything reversed itself and now it seems like they will have a full complement of folks there but for for 24 hours or so it looked a little sketchy like the combine may be a very watered down event uh thankfully for the league uh, they will have everybody who's expected to attend although I, I will tell you Lance having been there you know for several years it's a it's a very sardine like situation when you're talking about those press conferences with the players, uh, talking to the agents, talking to a lot of people over by Radio Row. It can get a little hairy, and I would be lying to you if if I said uh, it's not a bit concerning, even though the pandemic has diminished significantly. Uh, it it would kind of give me a little bit of the creeps myself, to be frank with you. I mean, I know John's going. I'm not going this year. We have uh, uh, only a few spots available to go, and we need production people as they follow uh, Shane and they follow Dable during the course of the Combine. So it was more important that we had those folks out there to do it. Uh, but it's it's a bit of a sticky situation. I Again, having been there, Folks, the best way I could describe it, if you've ever gone to a street fair or a carnival and there's always that one ride or that one game, that one carny game where everybody kind of circles around and they're all watching this guy who's going to knock over the milk cans or whatever it is. And, and there's a huge groundswell of a crowd right around them and everybody's basically shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow. And, I don't know, Lance. I'll, I'll be honest with you. It would it would give me a little bit of trepidation if I if I were out there this year. 
Well, it'll be interesting to see how they orchestrate, to your point, which is, I think, what somewhat of what you're alluding to, is the whole interview setup, where normally, from what I understand, you know, players go to these little podiums and then everybody huddles around them. I don't know if necessarily they're going to have a similar structure. I know the GMs and the coaches, they do the same thing. You have the sections where the media reporters who cover that team, they come, they meet and greet with the coach and the GM, and they have a little platform and so forth. Who knows if they're going to duplicate that, or maybe they'll have a little bit more spatial setup, because I think that's what you're really hitting on, the fact that everybody's on top of one another. And I know that if you go back to the Super Bowl, which was not necessarily extremely different from what it was pre-pandemic because they had a typical radio row, but if you notice any interactions with the players from both teams, everything was over Zoom mm-hmm. for the most part. Now, I don't know whether or not that's feasible. I mean, I'm assuming most reporters, you have a computer, you have a laptop, and you could probably bring one player up to the Zoom session, and then you could ask all the questions you want, and then you can move on. So it's not as if the technology, Paul, does not allow them to accommodate through that way as opposed to just having them up close and personal on top of one another. Well, the interesting part for me is that if they were going to do it that way and have the players available through Zooms, well, then the fact remains that you could make that available to almost any one of the NFL media people around the country, and you wouldn't necessarily restrict it to those who are there. Now, as you and I both know, when the the whole media situation was was done under normal circumstances pre-pandemic, the room was just jammed with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of media personnel and agents and front office personnel and scouts, and and they're constantly milling around with each other. And again, there's so much interaction. I don't. I just don't know if the people in Indianapolis. I don't know what the government says there in terms of what their restrictions are right now. I understand they're rather lax. But I don't know if if I were the NFL or if I were any of those people that I would necessarily want it to be the same way. I would probably have it set up in some type of spatial existence. And I don't know what it would be. Okay, I don't know. You make a great point. See, the Senior Bowl the last two years had set up an electronic virtual Internet type of system where if you applied for Internet credentials to the Senior Bowl and you didn't go, which I've never gone to the Senior Bowl, but in each of the last two years, I was approved for Internet credentials. And so I was allowed to watch all the practice footage, all the individual unit footage. I, I mean, I got all of it because it was available to me through an Internet passcode that, that the Senior Bowl allowed media to obtain. And it was great because I, I almost felt like I was there. Now, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, John will know more when he gets out there next week. And, and he'll be doing shows, and, and I'm sure he's going to get as many of our normal guests as he can, but you just don't know. I mean, and the one thing for sure, I would have to say, I'm sure the attendance is going to be lower than what it, what it usually is. And, I mean, look, I'm going to tell you guys something now because uh, it's, it's long past, but I knew that Cam Newton was getting cut by the Panthers, and I knew that Stephon Diggs was getting traded by the Vikings long before anybody did because people in those organizations who I knew and trusted me had told me in the team lobby, in the lobby of the hotel at the Combine, I knew then that Diggs was getting traded and Newton was getting cut. And all the media reports were, oh, never going to happen. The Diggs stuff is passed. He's not getting dealt. They're holding on to him. Cam Newton, they love him in Carolina. There's no way they're going to get rid of him. And I had, I had team people telling me flat out, no, this is going to happen. And, of course, subsequently, 
both things happened. Those were huge blockbuster pieces of news. Now, they didn't involve the Giants, so obviously I didn't take them to our program. And obviously the people who told the information to me did not expect me to put it out there in the public airwaves either. But that's the kind of stuff, okay, that if you're really a good reporter and you know what you're doing and you know how to mill around and you know who to talk to, there's tons of stuff you can get out there under normal situations and circumstances. I'm just not so sure that that's going to be available this year because of all the crap that's going on. Well, you're looking at it also from the media perspective. There's going to be those conversations, though, that happen amongst teams. If there's two GMs that want to do some wheeling and dealing, they're mm-hmm. not going to be preventing themselves from having no those question. conversations because you got everybody in one spot. So, you know, that to me is the number one priority, at least I'm sure from the NFL standpoint, from the team perspective, is can we interact with the players can we get the measurements we need? Can we get the medical info? Can we sit down and interview? Well, them? they're the priority, Lance, Correct. obviously. Exactly. It's about yeah. the league. It's not about the rest of us. Yeah, no, and I'm not saying that, listen, as a member of the media, I'm not saying that the media should be brushed off. Once again, you and I are talking about, I think that technology can accommodate and help navigate some of these challenges you're talking about. But I think in terms of getting it up and running and getting through the week, the number one priority is the interaction between the players and the teams. That has to be something that's at the forefront. Can you do that smoothly without interruption? That's why what you were talking about with the whole agent boycott, which all of a sudden arose this weekend, and then they were able to unbubble it, and everybody at least took a step back and cool heads prevailed, thankfully, because I don't think what they were looking for couldn't have been accomplished to begin with, given the fact that most agents tell their players every single year, regardless, you don't have to go through the individual skill set workouts if you're going to have a pro day. They advise most of their clients anyway, hey, meet, greet the teams, make a good, strong impression. If you're fully healthy, I don't think you have any fear in terms of the weigh-in and the medical. I I think if anybody is fearful, Paul, and this is just my personal opinion, or maybe an agent telling a player is if if a kid is coming off an injury, right, in college, maybe you want to wait till you have a few more months of rehab under your belt before you're willing to unveil exactly where your status is. But if you're a fully healthy college player, what exactly do you have to hide? I don't think there's anything to be overly concerned about in terms of revealing to the teams at that point. I think, you know, one of the the top 10 picks or a consensus top 10 pick who's certainly going to be scrutinized uh, with tremendous uh, uh, um, uh, enthusiasm uh, at this combine um, is going to be uh, Derek Stingley Jr., the corner out of LSU, because people believe, at least it seems as though he's a consensus top 10 pick. He is a cover corner, three-year starter, press coverage, outstanding player. But he only played three games this past season because he had foot surgery. Now, uh, you know as well as I do, Lance, the only question that could drop this guy as a player is the medical. And that's what the Combine's all about. So now he's got this foot surgery, which cost him most of this past season. So he's got the rust of not playing. But more importantly, he had to do a foot repair. And for a defensive back, that could potentially be a very, very big deal. And so now every one of these teams is going to be all over him like a hawk, knowing that this guy's a potential top 10 pick and he's coming off of foot surgery. There are going to be some questions for him, and the medical people are going to just be, they're going to be all over it. And they're going to have to tell their GMs, okay, is this a low risk? Is this a no risk? Is this a high risk? 
And that's going to determine where this guy falls because we all know about his abilities. Sure. Well, he had surgery in early October, just to give the time frame to our listeners. So that's why I say everyone's different, Paul, because you could perhaps make the argument if he's fully healthy. I don't know how far along he is in terms of his rehab process, but it's encouraging. If you had surgery in October, I would think that now that we're talking about February, you're probably well on your way in terms of recovery. You may look at the combine as a golden opportunity to want to show the teams where you are at that point so that you don't have any concerns entering the draft or they don't have any reason to not want to select you. This could be a beautiful chance for him to quiet the skeptics Oh, no if doubt. you want to look at it from that standpoint. It could go either way. Yeah. And, 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 you know, here's the thing, though, Lance, and we all assume, and I understand because you're talking about the finest medical people uh, that are employed by these National Football League teams. They get the best of care. We all know that. But nobody's infallible. And I remember when Landon Collins had that surgery. Remember remember he had it on his uh, forearm? And then they had to go back in because it didn't heal correctly after the surgery. And he had to have a second one on the same injury. I mean, you just don't know. So how is, how is Stingley's foot coming along? Is it, you know, and, and if if it's not coming along properly, does he need another procedure to fix it appropriately? No, this these are questions that all these NFL teams are going to want to know about. And there's examples that we could look at recent history, past history. There's teams that they take a flyer on a player and they hope for the best. And then there's other examples where you all of a sudden grab a player he fell to you, and then he's perfectly and fully healthy by the time the season starts. For example, two guys that come to mind, I'm going to bring up a team in the division just to show you sort of the roll of the dice mentality. Well, Jalen Smith, right? Well, Jalen Smith is one guy. No, you could certainly bring him up. But I think most people knew, though, Paul, in fairness, I think they knew that he was probably going to miss that initial season, though. Yeah, I think, I think the fair, question right? was how much would he recover, though, and could he be an effective player after Correct. the whole thing was over? Nobody exactly. knew. Yeah. So I think, though, that was at least clear in terms of you knew if you were going to draft him, I guess my point is, Paul, you knew you're looking at pretty much a redshirt year. If the earliest you're going to get him on the field is probably not until the second year. I think at least every team understood that. I agree. I'm talking about players that maybe still had the chance to play their first year, but there was some injury baggage. So the team that I was going to actually go towards was the Eagles because we got two recent examples. If you remember Landon Dickerson, okay, this past year. Sure. Right? Okay. Hey, that turned out very nicely for Mm -hmm. them. But then Sidney Jones, okay, in the secondary, and he got hurt, if you remember, relatively late in the draft process. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that also made it a little bit more muddy. Uh Uh-oh, what are you going to do? And then, you know, things didn't necessarily pan out. He didn't get on the field immediately, had his ups and downs, and he's no longer even on the Philadelphia Eagles. So there's one team. They took chances on two guys that fell under the same umbrella, right, injuries, and one worked out very nicely, and you got immediate production. The other guy, you didn't get immediate production. You hung with him during the course of at least the bulk of the rookie contract, but when you look back, did you get a lot of bang for your buck, Paul? No, the answer would be no. So, I mean, that to me is, you don't even have to go further. You just look at one team, they took chances on two injury players with baggage, I'm sure they did their homework. I'm sure they did their research. But it just goes to show you when it works, hey, you feel great, right? You feel that was fantastic. We did our research. We took care of it. But then you could do all your homework. And then all of a sudden, to your point, Paul, three weeks into training camp, 
Maybe they re-injure the injury, or maybe they have a setback. I mean, how are you supposed to have a crystal ball? It's just, it comes down to what is a team willing to do? How much are you willing to put out on the line? And maybe do you feel good about your previous draft class or the rest of your roster, right? Every team is in a different position. If you're going into this draft, like for the Giants' perspective, they know they've got to hit on these picks because of what happened in previous drafts. So the willingness to roll the dice and get into risky situations, I don't know if that's high, for the Giants, as it would be for another team that feels pretty good based on their track record. Well, let's put it this way, Lance. It's not just that the Giants have to hit on their picks, but they need immediate production out of their higher picks, okay? Like you just said, you could look at a guy like a Jalen Smith, right, and say, okay, Cowboys figured he's going to be a good player, but we're going to have to wait a year. Certainly that's a roll of the dice, but they were in a position when they drafted him thinking they could afford to wait a year because they still had Sean Lee. Right? Yep. Okay. So that's not the case with the Giants. The Giants have some significant holes to fill. Not only do they have to hit on guys, they got to hit on guys who are almost as much as NFL game ready as you can get your hands on. They really, I mean, you know, Carl Banks loves to use this phrase. He goes, these prospects, they're not just add water. You know, you got to coach them up. You got to develop them. Well, the Giants are in a situation where I think it's pretty fair to say when you look at their first three rounds, probably even first four rounds, you're going to be looking at guys who are not only very talented, guys who fit the Giants system, guys who have checked all their boxes in their player portfolios, but they're also going to be guys, I would presume, who are going to be coming from pro-style programs who play the kind of stuff that you see in the National Football League. You're not going to be seeing you know, too many guys who are doing too much of the college stuff that's not necessarily being adapted into the NFL, although we both know that more and more college stuff is sure. sneaking its way into the NFL game. There are still a number of teams okay, that still do college-type things that haven't made their way up here yet. I don't think the Giants are going to draft those kind of scheme-specific players. I just don't. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here on Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. A reminder that with us now looking towards the 2022 season, you could secure your season tickets, Giants fans, for that campaign today. For only $100, limited seats are available. You can speak with a Giants ticket representative now. Become a season ticket member. Call 888-NYG-1925. 201-939-4513. That is the telephone number as we move forward here on BBKL. And we check in with Tim in Charleston who joins us. What's happening, Tim? Hey, guys. Good to talk to you again. Hi. Um, I just got two things. Um, one is on the – none of it has to do with the combine. But one, one's on the defense, one's on the draft. It won't take me but a minute. Um, on the defense, I'm excited about Wink Martindale, Martindale's defense because I just feel like it's going to be a, a go-for-the-throat kind of defense. And, you know, it, it, I like it because, yeah, sometimes when you go for the throat, you get kneed in the you-know-where. But um, <laughs> Okay. I hadn't but, thought of it I, that know, way, but okay. Hey, you I better wear your cut is what you're saying. <laughs> right, but you know, but but it's worth it because you keep the opponent on on the defensive even when he's on offense. And that, you know, in the past, as much as I like Patrick Graham, I feel like it was a death by a thousand cuts. They weren't. Uh, they were more reactive. You know, I mean, it's like how do I say? 
they you know they held their gr- they held their ground in the red zone and they did all that but but they were they were putting so much pressure on themselves and also um you know uh, a slow bleed a field position which is such an important part of the game so that's the first thing I would the disagree thing, with one part yeah. of what you just said, though, and, and, and just let me interrupt okay. for a moment. Uh, Patrick Graham relied on a tremendous amount of disguising, specifically in the back seven. And so, uh, and, and we all know how big a big deal uh, Logan Ryan was to a lot of what they were doing with their disguises. So I would say this. Yes, the bend but don't break really put a lot of emphasis on the red zone and making plays down there. But the fact that he did so much disguising during the course of the game, even on early downs, regardless of field position, that's not necessarily the same passive kind of attitude that I think your statement kind of kind of leads one to believe. You know what I mean? Because yeah, well, if you're yeah, if you're I just mean, a passive guy, you're just sitting back, you're playing prevent, you're, you're you're playing off coverage, and you're not doing the kind of disguising that Patrick Graham did. If you're just being totally passive. You know, the fact that you do so much disguising does indicate somewhat of an impetus that you are trying to impose some of your will on the opposition through the mental aspect of the game, not so much through the attacking by sending guys vertically. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with your point, Paul, and, and I don't by any means think it was passive. Okay. Um, you know, I just, I, just, I just feel like, what was the term I wanted? You know, I just feel like it was... It was a little bit more reactive. I mean, yeah, they're disguising, and that creates some opportunities. But it's like, you know, it's like if, if you're in a fight, you know, you can let the guy come to you and fend him off and wait for the opportunity to strike, or you can strike first. You can go first. So I prefer the latter, you know, being an old-school defense-first Giants fan. And the second thing I have is on the draft. And, and you know, on it's like everything in life. People tend to talk in absolutes. And, you know, when we get into this whole conversation on best player or needs and then with uh, positional value thrown in as the wild card, I mean, I don't think that anyone is out there saying, we're drafting best player, we're not going to worry about needs. Or we're drafting needs and we're not going to worry about best player. It's obviously, and then positional value, it's obviously always a calculation that takes into account a lot of factors. And I know you guys know this, but I just feel like it gets talked about in black and white so much that it's like, you know, yeah, if there's a guy, if you're sitting, I don't want to use the Giants as an example, but let's say you're sitting down at 15 or 20, and there's a guy who is the best player available, clearly, and he's ranked, you know, three or four spots or five spots ahead of the guy that you that you had your eye on that you need because you have a glaring need. I mean, I don't think that teams just say, well, we need him, but we need to fill that position, but we're going to take the best player available because that's the Bible. And and I just feel like there's so much that goes into it. You know, it's like it's like going out with women. You don't just go for looks. You don't just go for intelligence. You don't just go for personality. It's got to be a blend of all three, or you're going to get it wrong and you're going to get screwed in the end. 
Well, you I don't agree? know if everybody follows that philosophy, Tim, in terms of your latter example. Listen, I get where you're going, Tim, but boy, I was waiting for that to turn. It didn't turn exactly the way I was thinking you were going to turn it. But I don't think, based on what happens in society, that everybody follows your philosophy on the latter, Tim, okay? Maybe when it comes to marriage, okay, and tying the knot, they take all of those in. As far as dating, I don't know about that. But, look, listen, I get your point in all seriousness, and we talk about this all the time on the program. No, there aren't any absolutes. I would wholeheartedly agree with you. I think most teams, they're weighing a variety of different factors, which is what you're saying. Now, sometimes does the positional value versus the need, meaning does some team weigh one factor more than the other? Sure. But they're not necessarily just putting it all on an island and not taking into consideration how the other dominoes would fall into place. Case in point, I'll give you an example unrelated to the Giants. If you remember, the Lions went a few years in a row. They constantly picked wide receivers, if you remember, the first round. It was like one wide receiver after another. And at a point, you're saying, well, how many wide receivers do the Lions need? Well, clearly, from a positional value or in terms of where those wide receivers were on their draft board in comparison to other positions, they valued that spot. Now, I'm not saying that it worked out for them. That's not my point. But the way the Lions operate is not necessarily how the Vikings are going to operate. Yeah, so and, and I mean, it's it's one of those things where clearly if there's somebody who is just head and shoulders the best player at his position and it's something that you weren't planning on taking at that spot and maybe you have your eye on someone else. But the other factor, of course, is, you know, if the guy, if the need that you have to fill versus the the best player, if that need, if you look at, okay, well, if we don't take the guy we need, how much is the drop-off? That's another big factor. How yeah. much is the drop-off to our next pick and what we're going to be able to get there? And you have to take that into account because sometimes that's why you'll draft players what people will say is too high for their ranking or you'll pass up on that player who's needed and vice versa. You'll see a player, you know, if a great cornerback or whatever, any position, every team is different. If, if somebody who's just head and shoulders, you know, better than the next person in the draft, head and shoulders better than your need is to the next person. You're going to take that person because you're trying to improve your team overall, not just one position at a time. And, and thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I'll take the rest of your – I'll listen to the rest of the show off here. All right, Tim. Appreciate the phone call. This actually goes back to – Paul, we maybe even had this conversation yesterday, I think, a little bit in terms of – when you operate with the mindset of the fifth and the seventh overall picks for the Giants, if they wanted to split, let's say, one on an offensive lineman, one on a defensive lineman, or if you wanted to go in the direction of two offensive linemen, I'm just throwing out hypotheticals, part of the conversation, at least where I'm coming from, is, well, if we waited to address that area of need in the second round, what is the drop-off? How many guys do we anticipate being taken off the board in the first round. Is there a huge disparity between the offensive lineman we'd get at five versus the offensive lineman that we'd get high in the second round? And if your answer is yes, there's a noticeable difference and you have conviction on the guy you were hoping to take at five, then you take the guy at five and you don't worry about it. You don't ask any questions. So, you know, that's what I think one of his last points was with respect to the drop-off if you wait on addressing a certain position. Well, look... We all know that there are so many factors that go into that player personnel folder that, and, and so many of them, by the way, 
are unknown in terms of the, the actual information to the rest of the outside world. When you talk about this, you're talking about skill set, you're talking about attitude, you're talking about work ethic, you're talking about injury report, you're talking about possible police blotter. There are so the many different issues. things. Yeah. Yes, so many different things that go into it. To be frank with you, and I don't mean to, to make a mockery of this, but we because we've all talked about taking best player available. Well, just because the tape shows that guy's the best player available, what happens if he doesn't check any of the other boxes? Well, then guess what? It doesn't matter what the tape says. If he doesn't check all the other boxes, he's going to fall like a stone. I mean, it's just that simple. I'll give you a great example, okay? Michael Parsons. I think we all believe, after the great season that he had, well, in retrospect, hindsight says he should have been one of the top five players in the draft this past season, right? Yeah. Is that fair? No, absolutely. Okay. But here's the problem. When you're going into that draft last year, there were off-the-field issues, okay? On The only on-the-field issue was that he took plays off. Okay, people who watched the tape said that there were times where he was lackadaisical and his motor did not always run hot. That was one thing about the tape that you could see. The thing that you did not see that was a total intangible was his personality profile. There were two incidents that he was involved in off the field that gave some teams pause that allowed some folks to pass on him because they were not good character issue incidents, or at least ones that were reported. Now, how much truth was there to those things? We don't know. You know that every team had to look at this guy's tape and say, okay, the ability's there, but why doesn't the motor always run hot? And what are these character issues that we've heard about? And they've got to investigate those things. When they come up with those answers, then they will decide are we passing on this guy at this slot or are we going to take a stab because we have enough information to be confident that he's going to do well by us? Obviously, Dallas felt that way, and it's paid off for them so far. Well, and also Parsons opted out of the 2020 season. So, Correct. You know, That's I think, an, and that, that was another yeah. instance that we don't have the, the, uh, the COVID situation now because everybody played this past season. Correct, but I think that if you were a team and you were saying, well, what makes you think he's going to pick up where he left off? If you had that concern, I wouldn't blame you. So I think that was a question mark, too, hovering over him. And, I mean, listen, in hindsight, Paul, he went 12th overall. I mean, I get it if we were to have the redraft, perhaps. Okay, maybe you'd put him a few picks higher, but it's not as if the rest of the NFL just completely fell asleep on Micah Parsons, considering the Cowboys did take him 12th overall. Mm-hmm. You know, there are times where you see a guy, he'll land high in the second round and just explode. For example, Darius Leonard, okay? Darius Leonard would be a guy that oh. I think teams, right, would go back and say, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't have passed Do over I dare remind you, Lance, that, that the week of the combine, my two sleeper linebackers for the Giants were Darius Leonard and Lorenzo Carter. And when the Giants got one of those two guys, I was really, really happy. Well, Darius Leonard, tells me, Darius Leonard me. turned out to me to be a little bit better, didn't he? Yes, in terms of the criteria that we're talking about. But here's the other thing. Leonard, and no disrespect to him, he came from South Carolina State. And I understand that he had a good performance that season against some of the powerhouse programs. But these are the doubts that sometimes go in the minds of teams as they evaluate personnel. And here's the other thing that's important to note. When we throw around the term, Paul, best player available, best player available 
is going to fluctuate between the 32 teams. That's the best player available according to my draft board, my scouts. Mm -hmm. The best player available for the Jacksonville Jaguars is not necessarily the best player available for the New York Giants because it all depends on what they prioritize and how they put their draft board. So that's the other thing that I think is important, especially when we look like a year or two removed from a draft and you go back and you may listen to a press conference and you hear somebody say, well, you know, we took who we thought was the best player available. I don't necessarily think that was BS. Just it was according to their board. It doesn't mean they're right. It doesn't mean their assessment is more accurate than everybody else. It was just in their mind, that was their best player available. But if you look at somebody else's board, the best player available for the Jaguars may have been the seventh guy on the list for that team. Well, you know and what, Lance? we don't know until three or four years I think by. John made a great point when we discussed uh, Kadarius Toney many times for those folks who thought that maybe he was drafted too high. Going into the draft, the consensus, and this is why we always talk about the consensus, right? You look at the folks who you trust, you believe in, some of the national folks, some of the draft gurus. They, you know, And when you come up with a consensus, you basically can say, all right, this guy's a mid-first rounder, this guy's a, a, a late first rounder, this guy's an early first rounder. There's a ballpark consensus where you feel like there's an area of five or six picks where you think that guy's value belongs based on your study of leading draft gurus. And I think that's the thing that we need to keep in mind, that even these consensus uh, uh, kinds of predictions don't know the intangibles, okay? They don't have the medical reports. They don't have the detailed de detective intel that all these other teams have about attitude and off-the-field issues and everything else. But these consensus reports are based on football people who have watched the games, and have seen the testing at the combine or seen the testing at the pro days, and they come up with these consensus reports after you know munching 10, 15, 20, 30 different draft, uh, mock drafts. And I think John made a great point when he talked about the fact that when the Giants took Tony, that was the ballpark, the area, the vicinity, if you will, of where his consensus value was. And I don't think you can ever rip any team for taking a guy in the vicinity of where the consensus was for that player's value. Well, that's why even when we do our mock drafts and we go over the prospects, you know, normally we attach, okay, this guy's projected to go late first round, early second round, and, and that's pretty much how everybody operates. Now, is it a perfect science? No, because if it was a perfect science, then everybody would hit home runs in the draft, and you know that doesn't happen. That's why we always say there's got to be conviction, or at least I emphasize that. If you feel great about the player and he's in the ballpark of where you evaluated him, then you know what? Pull the trigger and take the player, period. And don't sure. ask any questions. It's as simple as that. If you're on the fence, then it's probably not a good reason to take the player. No, And I, I think absolutely. both teams have at least been put in that precarious spot. Or you can only imagine, and this is another reason why we talk about you always should at least have option B in your back pocket or have those preliminary discussions because what may happen is – Right before you're about to draft, right, Paul? How many times have we seen this? You know, and then you find out about this after the fact. The team, right before you took the player you wanted, and then all of a sudden, 
you can't move back. You have no option, so you better be prepared. Okay, if so-and-so is taken off the board, if we feel good about the other player, do we feel as if that player is going to fill a need, and do we know how we're going to operate accordingly? You have to prepare for that accordingly as well. And then sometimes you get really, really fortunate, and somebody drops into your lap that you never expected. Now, we all heard that there were some reports coming out that Aziz Ojolari had had some type of knee issue. Remember that going into the draft? Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I, I always kind of shy away from a, a first-round guy who if there's been some medical questions about, okay? But Ojolari, according to his tape and his pure talent on the field, most people thought he'd be a mid-to-late first-rounder, right? But the knee issue was the thing where people weren't sure, this reported knee issue, how far could that drop him? How how far down would he go? And then all of a sudden, second round, guys are getting taken off the board, and they're going, and they're going, and they're going. Giants come up, and they're desperately in need of a pass rusher, and here's this first-round tape of Aziz Ojolari, and I don't know if he indeed had a knee problem or didn't. I don't know what the Giants evaluated or didn't. But what I do know is, all of a sudden, he's sitting there, and they're like running up to the board, we're taking Aziz Ojolari. He turned out to play all 17 games this year and had nearly double-digit sacks. And I think they were very, very happy to have him. Now, again, I have no idea what their medical people said if there was or was not a purported knee issue. But there's a great example of a guy who dropped because of the medical folder, at least on some boards, apparently. And aside from his tape, there was no other reason to see this guy fall. And teams get rewarded when sometimes that happens because you get great value if you're patient. And so far, at least after year one, Ojolari held up from a health perspective, and he certainly produced. Let's head back to the phone lines at 201-939-4513. Abdul is in Minneapolis, and he joins us. What's happening, Abdul? Good morning. Hey, guys. So the more and more I think about the Saquon Barkley situation, I think the Giants are kind of a no-win situation. So just say Saquon balls out this year, right? He goes for 1,400 yards, you know, 15 touchdowns. Are we really going to pay him like $21 million a year for five, you know, five years extent of that? Like, can, can we afford that contract? Like, I don't think the Giants are in that position to do that as a rebuilding team. All right. Well, I'm right? going to add another piece of this equation for you. They could franchise him if you'd like. And right now, this year, the franchise tag for a running back is just over $9 million, which is not okay. exorbitant. No, $9 million is completely doable. I know. One, one year. Now, I don't know you what know, the so number's going to be next year. It might be a little over 10 by the yeah. time the cap increases right. and then the numbers get computed. But, right. you know, so, <laughs> that's not I, a horrible I, I number. Not, so if not. Barkley runs for 1,500 yards and catches 90 passes again, I think you'd be willing to pay it. Right. You, yeah. You know what? I, I did not equate the, the franchise tag in there. I, 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 just, I just thought purely um, an extension. And I just don't know. I just, I just don't see how the Giants, where they are in their, you know, rebuilding, you know, situation to afford that contract, you know, and, and you guys always talk about, um, you know, positional value. You know, there's so many other positions that we need to address in the next few years that running back is just not that, you know, it just it makes no sense, you know. So maybe at this point, you know, should they really think about, you know, trading them? 
you know, and I don't watch because I, I love him, you know, but it just, I think it's really just, this highlights kind of what a, what a mistake it was to pick him at two. And I know this kind of, with the, the, the beaten dead horse of a story, it's just put us in a really weird situation with him because up up this value, you know, we need, we need a quarterback, we need a rusher, we need so many more pieces of that. Let, let's put it you this know. way. Whatever you do with Barkley, and it seems like from what the Giants people have said, the new brass in addition to John Mara, they're going to build this this year's team around Jones and Barkley. So I don't think that's in their plans. But for those people who still would like to do something like that, here's the issue. If the Giants don't get the rest of that offensive line squared away, now that Andrew Thomas is, is pretty solid at the left tackle spot, okay, whoever it is, whether it's Booker this year, or some other guy that, let's say, they draft and bring in, he's going to get the snot kicked out of him. And then where, and then where yeah. are you? Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough spot. But hopefully they will. Hopefully, you know, they will address that in the draft. You know, they'll, the, the, the line will be good. But anyway, you know, that, 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 that's a different story. I just well, the thing, just real quickly before you move on, Abdul, I think the other thing you have to understand yeah. is with Barkley – his value is not at an all-time high right now. So, you know, I understand you say, well, maybe you could get something for him. You have to think, evaluate the market. You're going to have the draft coming up. It's very unlikely that a team is going to give up a lot of resources for a running back that's not proven to be durable. That's number one. So the feeling is, if you're not going to get unbelievable value for him, why not let him play out his rookie contract, and then you could decide what you want to do. You could always franchise him and then trade him too. You know, that's always an option as well. So, you know, I think that there's CBA rules and regulations that are in place that give the Giants at least the flexibility where they may not necessarily lose him for nothing, if that's your concern. But, I mean, just shipping a guy out of town for the sake of shipping him out of town, also not knowing how he could perhaps operate and how Brian Dable can utilize it. Because here's the other thing. If you look at Buffalo's running backs, they never really made a big splash. You know, they had Devin Singletary, they had Zach Moss, but they're not nearly as versatile and all-around as Barkley's skill set. So if Dable gets his hands on him and Kafka and Barkley, of course, stays healthy, which is still a question mark, who's to say that maybe they won't tap into things that hasn't previously been tapped into? That's why I think it's at least worth a flyer to hold on to him, especially since he's in the final year of his rookie deal. Look at it this way. I suspect... Whatever happens with Barkley and Booker, that third running back spot on the Giants' 53 is going to be a young back. Whether or not mm-hmm. it's somebody, I, I don't think Brightwell is necessarily going to be that guy. Uh, they just signed Williams from from the Bills, who has been floating around on, on their organization for a couple of years. Maybe it's a, a fourth or a fifth round pick that they take in April. But I'm pretty sure they will take a developmental back to be in that third spot on the depth chart, don't you? I do, yeah, I, I think so. Okay, I'm, so... I'm so they get, uh, they get the guys down from Alabama. Right, so I don't think it's... The point is, I don't think they're going to ignore the running back position because yeah. you've got to protect yourself in yeah. case Barkley's injuries flare up again and he doesn't he doesn't show out to be the guy that we all know he can be. I agree. Listen, guys, I appreciate your you taking my call. Listen, I didn't equate the franchise tag for him. That, that yeah, that's all part more. of it, man. Yeah. It's all yeah. part of it. Yeah. Well, but what totally. makes things interesting, Abdul? Did you have another point, by the way? No, that was it. No, okay. All right. I just want to. We're going to let you go on that note and appreciate the phone call. 
But what could complicate that, Paul, as we look ahead is, remember, if you're thinking about maybe giving Daniel Jones the franchise tag because you don't pick up the fifth-year option, then you're going to have to make the choice between both of those players. So that's at least something to keep in the back of our minds as we move forward here. But once again, those are decisions to be made in 2023 and not necessarily 2022. The other thing that I wanted to bring up, you were talking about the franchise tag for the running back. Just to give you an idea, Christian McCaffrey, if we base this on average annual salary, is the highest paid running back in the National Football League right now. Mm-hmm. Just over $16 million. Alvin Kamara is right behind him at $15 million. And then Zeke also is at $15 million. And Dalvin Cook is at 12.6, and then Derrick Henry rounds out the top five at 12.5. That's what the market is right now in terms of, that's average annual salary. I'm not taking into consideration total guarantees. That obviously is going to differ from running back to running back. But if you just want to look at what the market is like in terms of those top-tier running backs, nobody's at what the last caller was indicating, at least at this point, $21 million a year. So I highly doubt that you'd be paying Saquon Barkley that type of money, and we're only talking about a year removed from this season. We're not talking about, you know, five years removed. Yes, the market could dramatically change. I don't see the market jumping up that significantly unless you think, Paul, for the running back position by the time we get to this year, uh, by the time we get to this time in 2023. Highly improbable. And Lance, you actually make the best argument of all because let's just say for for Pete's sake, let's hypothetically say that Barkley has a sensational year this year, okay? And he balls out and, and he's an all-pro. Let's say he gets back to that. Well, the Giants now, they've got the, the, the franchise tag sitting in their pocket and whatever it turns out to be, 9 or 10 mil. Well, you slap it on him and now you mentioned just a few minutes ago that word trade. Well, because that's a beautiful thing. You now have Barkley under your control. And if for some reason he says, well, I just had an all-pro year and I'm not going to take the franchise tag. I'm going to demand that I get a three- or four-year multi-year contract and I want to be the highest-paid running back in the league because I proved that I could bounce back from the injury and still be a superstar again. Well, if he wants to play hardball like that and doesn't want to deal with the tag, then then you know what? You deal him. You trade. You trade him. Trade him to a team that is willing to, off of an all-pro performance, potentially give him that three- or four-year contract. You give him the right to talk to somebody else, see if he can work out a multi-year deal with one of the other teams in the league, and say, okay, we'll work out a trade and hammer it out. And you'll still wind up getting much better value in a trade if you do it that way than if you try to trade him now. Yeah, and that's why I think, you know, once again, the CBA at least allows for things like that because if somebody else wants to invest a great deal of money in Saquon off of one solid season, hey, that's fine. So you should at least feel as if you could get something in return considering you utilized the second overall pick. I think the biggest fear, and this is just my interpretation, Paul, maybe you think differently because this is not the first phone call that we fielded with respect to trying to come up with ways to maybe do something with Saquon Barkley before he even does anything within Brian Dable's offense, but it just seems as if I think most fans don't want to see him walk for nothing. That's just, at least that's how I'm putting two and two together. So the fear is, okay, he plays out the final year of his rookie contract, he becomes a free agent, and then you kiss goodbye to a guy who you utilize, once again, a very high pick on in 2018. That seems to be what I'm 
taking away from this, so therefore you might as well get something in return, but also you have to take into consideration, wouldn't you rather, and this is my argument, wouldn't you rather see how this next season pans out to see if he could get his value up, Mm -hmm. even if you're not convinced, Paul, that you want to invest in him, so therefore he becomes more attractive to the rest of the league. Right now, hey, could you get a team or two that has some interest, but maybe they're not necessarily willing to give up a lot? Sure, if you maybe threw him out and dangled him out there. But I don't think his value is extremely high right now. And once you get to free agency and the draft, Paul, and teams start filling up their running back depth charts, why in their right mind are they going to want to acquire Saquon Barkley when they already utilized other resources on addressing that position? Unless there's something that we don't know about that is potentially lingering from his medical history, where the Giants don't have confidence that he can blow up and be a superstar running back this year. Maybe they, just for hypotheticals. There's some red flags is what you're saying. If there's a red flag there, well then that might be the only reason to dump out now and to get out earlier and take whatever you can get. Short of that, if everything is taken at face value, it is a win-win for the Giants if Barkley returns to all-star form. Because then they either have him, not only with a great season and the potential of the franchise tag, but then they've also got him for the great season with the potential to trade him by using the tag where they'll get much more value. It is a win-win. It it absolutely makes zero sense. I laugh. I laugh at the lack of intelligence of the people who have said and written articles that the Giants should trade Saquon Barkley right now and bail. Why in the world would you do that now when you are in a win-win situation? It reminds me somewhat, and a little bit different because it's a different position, but we had a lot of these conversations, Paul, revolving around Evan Ingram. And a lot of people said the same thing because Evan's now going to be a free agent. So we're beyond the days of, okay, hey, keep him and see if he can all of a sudden, you know, branch out and have a productive season. But it was the same thing. Evan struggled to stay healthy. So what I was throwing out was what makes you think that teams are knocking down the door right now to go to the Giants and say, yeah, we're willing to give you this, this, and that so that you can trade us Evan Ingram. I mean, you have to, you got to look at it from a market value standpoint. Why give away a player at a very low value just for the sake of cutting ties where maybe now that you have a new coach, you have a new scheme, hopefully he has another fully healthy offseason that he gets through and he's a little bit more removed from the significant knee injury that nobody saying that he's going to become a pro bowler he's going to all of a sudden light up the scoreboard but to prove that he's durable he can hold up he can be out there every game he can be productive and then maybe that piques the interest of other teams I just I would rather gamble on that whether or not I truly believe it's going to come to fruition I still I'd rather gamble with that than right now part ways with him and maybe get a mid to late round pick if I'm lucky and just say, okay, I don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, that's always the case, Lance, because we all know that hindsight's twenty twenty, and it's always going to be perfect and you'll always figure out after the fact what you should have done. But when you're entering a situation such as this, you have to weigh the factors, weigh the risks and the rewards, and then make what appears to be the most logical decision based on what you think you could gain compared to the percentage of what you could lose. And that's why when when we go over this, I, I tell people all the time, 
Don't tell me two, three, four years from now what you would have done at that time. If you're going to do that and you want to be hindsight in 2020 about it, fine. Say in retrospect, that did not work out or this did work out and here's why or here's why not. That's fine. But then to be critical of somebody about the decision they made, you literally have to peel the calendar back, go backwards to the time the decision was made. And say, what were the factors that they looked at at the time? What was the risk-reward? What were the uh, uh, particular elements that they weighed? And why did they make that decision? It may have been a very sound decision at that time. Which, four years down the road, turned out to be awful. Well, nobody ever does that. Sure. Nobody ever does that. But that's what you have to do. And, you know, it's short-sighted, but again, that's that's what hindsight's all about, and that's what, that's what you know, certainly a lot of people like to do all the time, is just go with hindsight. But uh, anyway, it's, it's a great conversation. No, but I'm on board with you, Paul. I understand exactly where you're coming from. I mean, the term that I would use is, I mean, you use sound logic, I mean, rationale. At the time you made that decision, if you thought it through, there was good rationale behind it, hey, that's how you operated. That doesn't mean, though, that you had the crystal ball, it's going to pan out three or four years later. So, I mean, I go with, if you have conviction, you have rationale behind your decisions, go with your gut, make those decisions. In an ideal world, we'd love everything to work out. It's just, that's not how it operates. And unfortunately, the one thing that you never knew, and let's bring it full circle here. Let's stick with Saquon Barkley, okay? If the Giants, and I think I may have mentioned this in passing, if you would have told the Giants, Saquon's going to have a torn ACL and there's a high probability that he's not going to be on the field for X amount of games. Yeah, I'm sure everybody would go back and say it's not worth utilizing the second overall pick on a player, regardless of the position. Okay, I don't care about the position. The bottom line is the guy's just not available. He's not out there. But nobody, when you looked at him at Penn State, Paul, okay, there wasn't that big red flag of, uh oh, you know, I don't know about Saquon holding up, right? There wasn't that. So you can't point to, if there was that red flag, for everybody who's skeptical and doubts the pick, I get that. But if you were to say that there was baggage coming out of Penn State with respect to health and durability, and then they make the pick, okay, you know, we can maybe play a little bit more of hindsight as 2020 here because there was actually tangible evidence to go by. There was no tangible evidence from his college playing days to say, Saquon, there's concern about whether or not he's going to hold up. And that would have been, to me, even more of an argument to say, you know what? It just it doesn't make sense to go in that direction. The positional value aside, I'm not considering positional value. I'm just looking at the time you made the pick health-wise. Did he check out? Was there anything that you heard? I don't know. Can he get through a full NFL season? Can he do it three or four years in a row? If you heard whispers of that, that to me would have been enough to say, okay, I'm not sure about number two. But I just going back, there just there wasn't enough of that, Paul. Well, I'll give you another example before we kick it out because I know our time is running short. But remember when JPP was traded by the Giants? He had signed that new deal. Yep. Five-year deal, mega bucks, backloaded deal. At the time they signed him, if you looked at the breakdown of the contract, we knew they they needed to maintain whatever pass rushing that they had. So they had to retain him. They couldn't afford to get rid of him at the time because the, the production on the field was too important. They were already hurting for pass rush. They couldn't deplete it any worse. So they had to resign him. The way the contract was structured, you could tell 
he probably was going to be economically friendly to dispose of after three years. I think it was three. It was a five-year deal. And I think the way the contract was structured, you figured he probably would be here for three. And then economically, it would be beneficial to potentially get rid of him. But here's the thing that they had to factor in. When the Giants made the deal and they got, you know, a uh, uh, close to draft picks back for him, they also went through the medical. And you know what the medical said? His hand had been blown off by the fireworks situation, right? He had had that injury where he lost several fingers. He had had a neck injury. He had had a back injury. He had had multiple knee injuries. He had had a foot injury. He had had so many injuries that the medical risk of him being able to play the length of that contract was very, very, very poor. And so when Gettleman had the opportunity to get out of that deal by trading him and picking up some fresh new young talent via draft picks, he made the trade. It made perfect sense when you weighed the logic. But what happened? JPP went four years now with Tampa Bay, He played two full seasons and two other seasons where he missed a handful of games. But he did give them four years to this point and two full seasons, outlasting and outliving every prediction that the medical people had for him. And he's played pretty damn well, too. I think he made one Pro Bowl and helped them win a Super Bowl. Well, and he had 12 and a half sacks in his first year with Tampa Bay. And then, as you mentioned, which I was going to bring up, he helped them win some hardware. So I think okay. if you're Tampa Bay, you're saying to yourself, listen, I don't care what we gave up for him. Right. We got a Super Bowl. In hindsight, they won and did great on that trade. But my goodness, they were willing to take a huge risk on his medicals because they were so desperate to get a pass rusher thinking he'd be one of the missing pieces to their championship run. That doesn't mean Gettleman was wrong to deal him. Because if you peel back the calendar at the time, based on the medical evidence, chances are he was not going to play four more years and help help a team win. It just wasn't in the cards. And he defied the odds. Those things will happen. And you know what? The Bucks are thrilled that they got him. All right, so that is going to wrap up Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Certainly appreciate everybody for tuning in. We'll be back up and running again on Thursday at noon Eastern. A reminder that today's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live is part of the Giants platforms everywhere and Giants.com slash podcast. Appreciate everybody for tuning in. Paul, good discussion as always. Look forward to doing it again later on this week. Good show, Lance. Absolutely. For Paul Dettino, I'm Lance Meadow. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest, and we'll speak to you on Thursday at noon Eastern. Have a good one.